This is WPRB Princeton, New Jersey. Community supported, independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's time for news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Today is June 21st, the summer solstice here in the Northern Hemisphere. It feels late, 85 degree days come and go, glasses of water fog and sweat in the heat. Tanned lines wrap our biceps and freed school children swarm the streets. But today is the first day of summer. Ask the Naval Observatory or a meteorologist or your sixth grade science teacher, or ask me because you know it's summer when news and culture gets even jauntier, even less organized, even more wide-reaching in its umbrella of content, when it's time for the news and culture summer dispatch. The New York Times and Washington Post have dispatches where they see importance in regular coverage of stories abroad. WPRB is a little less lucky with our ability to send reporters to the front lines in Kyiv or the parliament in Westminster. But our reporters are out and about. They venture by planes, trains, and automobiles to bring you their dispatches. Where in the world is WPRB? As the host, I get to answer that. WPRB is here in Princeton, but we're also in the Napa Valley, in Brooklyn, and on Capitol Hill. We're in Princeton and Paris, Metro Philadelphia and Munich, in Austria, but also Annapolis. And so today we have three news stories for you. Tales from California, Pennsylvania, and Washington, DC. So crack open a nice tea and turn on your air conditioner. Summer is here. You can rest easy now. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community supported, independent radio. First up, we hear from reporter Reina Kulabali out in Sonoma, California. Hello, WPRB listeners. My name is Reina Kulabali, and I'm a relatively new addition to the news and culture team, although you may have heard me here and there in past episodes. This summer, I'm coming at you from far, far away, specifically Sonoma County in Northern California. I am here because I have been awarded the Martin A. Dale Class of 53 Summer Award, which is basically a grant given to Princeton sophomores to take on a project of personal interest for the summer. I'm a rising junior in the Department of Religion, so I was of course looking to use my award to delve into some facet of religious studies. My summer project is to do some ethnographic research at Sonoma Ashram, which is the only home to Aghor Hinduism in the West. Babaji Harihar Ram, who we simply call Baba or Babaji, 
is the guru here at the ashram and people come from far and near, sometimes internationally, to consult with this renowned spiritual leader. To be honest, I've been on a bit of a spiritual quest to find meaning in this increasingly chaotic world, as I'm sure is the case for many young folks these days. I was raised Muslim, although religion did not play a big role in my personal journey to adulthood. As a scholar, I've been lucky to explore many world religions on an intellectual level, although I find that my spiritual core is still looking for a soft place to land. These days, I've been thinking a lot about the expression of take what you need and leave the rest. It's been helpful for me as I navigate this new philosophical tradition and particularly as I work to combat my internal biases from how I was raised. Upon my arrival at Sonoma Ashram, I was surprised to hear a long-term resident and devotee earnestly tell me that no religion is performed here at the ashram. Their mission surrounds Aghor Yoga. First, let's define yoga in this context. In Eastern religion, yoga is not a trendy workout, rather it is called yog, which means union. Babaji told me that his job is to act as a portal through which people can commune with their higher power. In this tradition, there's an indescribable higher energy that many people would call God, from which all life comes and to which all life will return. Thus, there's an emphasis on the God that is in every living being. The Guru's job is to facilitate an individual's ability to worship the God within themselves. From my conversations with Babaji, my impression is that his ultimate goal is not to produce devotees, rather to create people who can become their own gurus. The result of this is that this place welcomes not only Hindu practitioners, but people of all faith traditions. The ashram says that evangelism is not on the table in any way here. That makes a lot of sense to me, although my main sticking point here was an understanding why people prostrate themselves to the guru, serve the guru, and make personal decisions with the guru's approval in mind. In our first conversation, I posed this question to Babaji, and he said that he is a man just like the rest of us, and he deals with human vices, from greed and envy to jealousy and anger. He told me that the only real difference between he and I is that he has walked a spiritual path that I have not been able to access yet. This conversation brought me to a place of skepticism in why and how followers are able to place so much trust in Babaji's integrity. I have immense respect for him as a religious leader, although the scholar in me can't help but think about all of the people over the decades who have professed themselves to be spiritual leaders. In some cases, these quote-unquote leaders have fallen mercy to their vices and, because of the trust that their followers put in them, they were able to yield immense power, sometimes in a destructive manner. At this time, I don't believe that Babaji is one of those leaders, although it would be irresponsible of me as an investigative scholar to discount this possibility. After all, he lives in a lavish home on a beautiful property where all of his needs are attended to at the drop of a hat. One thing that lends this place a lot of legitimacy in my eyes is their work abroad. Babaji has founded several service-based organizations in Varanasi, India, including Bal Ashram, a safe home for boys in need, and Project Shakti, a women's empowerment program and vocational school located inside of Bal Ashram. 
These are just two projects out of quite a few that you are all welcome to check out on their website, sonomaashram.org. All of that being said, one of the first things that I noticed when I arrived at Sonoma Ashram was that all of the permanent residents here are white. In the spiritual sense, that doesn't really mean anything, although this dynamic is quite compelling when observed through the lens of critical race theory. As a black woman, my mind went to all of the books and articles I have read about white Westerners eagerly grasping onto Eastern mystical traditions due to the esoteric knowledge they hold relative to what might seem to be oppressive Western religious thought. One instance of this that came to mind was the work of Alexander Webb in the Islamic sect called the Ahmadiyya. In chapter two of his book, Muslims in America, A Short History, author Edward E. Curtis IV wrote about white Ahmadi missionary Alexander Webb, who was born to a middle-class family of Protestants in Hudson, New York. The reason that Webb came to mind for me is that after his conversion into the Ahmadiyya movement due to his disillusionment with the Protestant church, he, as a white man, began to engage in evangelism on behalf of the Ahmadiyya movement, which was mostly made up of people of color located outside of the U.S. Webb basically branded Islam as a new exotic religion to gain white converts in the U.S. Curtis says here that Webb promoted Islamic religion as a spiritual resource in the battle against what he and other religious seekers viewed as an overly materialistic and spiritually moribund American culture. These words absolutely remind me of the America we are living in today and brings me to reflect on this trend that has happened over and over through the decades where in times of spiritual starvation, people look to fill that void by turning to something that might feel novel or different. I would like to emphasize here that there is literally nothing wrong with that. A person's religion is their business. And that's why I actually got into religious studies. I really like the mental challenge of observing subjective and highly varied experiences in new ways. Anyway, in the end, Webb did not end up amassing the white following he was looking for because, quote, the time was not ripe yet. Back to the ashram, though. When I first arrived, I really wondered why Babaji decided to build an ashram in a community that is definitely not the most in need of relief right now. I asked Babaji about this, and he said that when he was driving through Northern California early in his spiritual journey, the sign on the highway that read Sonoma reminded him of the Sanskrit word for of the mother. He was drawn to the name, and so he explored this community and eventually decided to set up camp here. Honestly, in the moment, that answer did not feel remotely satisfying to me. To put it bluntly, I was struggling with the question of whether this ashram was set up here as a means of capitalizing on the spiritually starved but somewhat wealthy community that can be found in Sonoma. After all, the average yearly salary here is $84,000, which is on the high side for California according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Here I was also debating with myself on why that even matters. Ultimately, the funds collected here are being used to service a community in need in Varanasi. As is the case in religious studies most of the time, it is impossible to tie this whole situation up with a neat bow. So, in the coming weeks, we will take a deeper dive into the ashram's work and the lineage from which it hails. You can also look forward to interviews with various devotees here at the ashram and maybe Babaji himself. 
If you do feel compelled to do so, please check out their website for more information. I will end things there, but I thank you for tuning in to this first episode of my mini-series, Reina at the Ashram. I would also once more like to emphasize that everything presented in this segment is solely my opinion, not that of WPRB or of Sonoma Ashram. I thank you deeply for joining me this evening. For WPRB, this has been Reina Koulibaly. WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's PhillyTenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV, Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next up, we hear from WPRB News and Culture near the White House correspondent Henry Moses in Washington, D.C. We at WPRB News and Culture try to be the voice of Central New Jersey. Lucky for me, I'm spending the summer in my own Central New Jersey. New Jersey Avenue in Washington, D.C., that is. Here is my Central New Jersey Avenue dispatch. At 7.52 one morning, on my way to buy various ingredients for the coffee shop, I walked by an event being set up for the Victims of Communism Foundation. Lots of interns not too much older than I dressed up in suits that were too big for them and bad sunglasses bad style if we're being honest. I wondered which intern picked Daft Punk to play on the sound system as a sort of pump-up soundtrack for this event. Everyone knows that communists hate Daft Punk, I thought to myself. I imagined one of those movies, heavy on the ideological tilt, a war in some smaller, large communist country soundtracked by Daft Punk. I thought of that scene in Apocalypse Now, yeah, you know the one, with the scary helicopters flying into the small Vietnamese village. Instead of them blasting Flight of the Valkyries by Wagner from the speakers in the helicopters, they're blasting One More Time by Daft Punk. By this point, I was far past the setup, but I only now wondered why they were having an event on a Friday morning at 8 a.m. on the sidewalk of New Jersey Avenue. A man came in with one of those balaclava things for a mask. He knew what he wanted right away, a dirty chai with two extra shots of espresso. He didn't seem to be a dirty chai drinker. His big hiking boots, balaclava mask, and fishing sunglasses didn't tip him off as someone who'd like chai lattes, but I guess people contain multitudes. I told him that our standard was two shots and asked if he still wanted an extra two. The look in Fred's eyes terrified me, struck something deep down within me as he said, Yeah, load me up. Eyes all buggy, 
visible smile under his mask, I nervously laughed and put the order in. What has Fred seen with those eyes? What did he need those four shots of espresso for? Was he going hiking with the boots, fishing with the glasses, and skiing with the balaclava? Maybe all at once? Then I asked myself, where could he find all of those things on New Jersey Avenue? I had to work late one night for we were hosting an event for some Capitol Hill think tank, the type of place Princeton graduates, likely SPIA majors, flock to. Their vague name and uncertain conversation made it so I'm not exactly sure what they actually do, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to research it and disclose it now, but one thought dominated as I made small talk with them as I poured them wine or walked by them to take out the trash. How do they react when it rains? You know, when the forecast says sunny, but for some reason it starts pouring. Do they react as normal people do? I was feeling in a good mood one afternoon, so I decided to be especially amicable to a guy who just had a meeting and was waiting in our shop for his train from the nearby Union Station. Where are you headed to? I asked, hoping to start a bit of a conversation to lighten his and my days. Here we were, our lives randomly intersecting on a Friday afternoon, with him ordering coffee from me and me very simply making that coffee for him in exchange for that thing called money. And I thought, why not try to make this intersection of our lives a bit better? Back home, New Jersey, he responded. My face lit up. My task was succeeding. Where in Jersey? I go to school there. Our connection was strengthening, the intersection becoming more memorable. Rutherford, he said, in which I looked up later because I had no idea where it was. And to my disappointment, I found out it was nowhere near the center. In fact, it's one of the towns furthest to the north, close to the city. But I didn't care. He, too, seemed excited to find a New Jerseyan on this Friday afternoon, and I got the impression that he was proud of his residency. For he could have just said he was from the city. It's really close enough, but he stuck to his true state. I'm from New Jersey, sings John Gorka on his song of that name. I'm from New Jersey. I don't expect too much. If the world ended today, I would adjust. I found a man from New Jersey in my little coffee shop on Central New Jersey Avenue, and it made my day. On the bus home one night, I decided to do some research on my new central New Jersey. The one thing of importance, and it's a big thing, is it being the location of the old New Jersey Avenue station. Sitting on a plot of land about one block south of my coffee shop and one block north of the Capitol building, the New Jersey Avenue station served as one of the main gates to and from our nation's capital from 1851 to 1907. Hand in hand with the construction of the station was the development of New Jersey Avenue itself and the development of the city, the capital, and the development of the country. A dispatch in the Weekly National Intelligencer from June 22, 1850, almost exactly 172 years ago, lists the conditions of the construction of the station. 1. Select a site at any point along its current Washington branch of the railroad on the eastern side of New Jersey Avenue. They would dismantle the section between the old depot and the new depot and relinquish the use of the track. Two. Build within 12 months a new depot on the selected location suitable for travel and fret on the line. 3. Pay $8,000 within 60 days to improve C and D streets northwest and North Capitol Street. Any surplus would be used to improve New Jersey Avenue between C and D Street North. 4. Pay within 60 days the taxes due on the property, with the exception the road and the cars and engines used upon it, the railway company owns in this city. About a year later, the station was finished and would now serve as the main station connecting the capital with Baltimore, then a weightier transportation hub, and thus connecting 
the capital with the rest of the country's train lines. Many important people passed through the New Jersey Avenue station during the years of its use. In March of 1857, James Buchanan, two days away from being inaugurated as president of the nation, arrived to the station to begin his residency in the White House. Four years later, in 1861, a disguised president-elect Abraham Lincoln arrived at the station ahead of his inauguration. Wearing a Kossuth hat as a disguise and traveling in a pack of only three people, Lincoln arrived in his new home through the New Jersey Avenue station, discreetly, as to avoid an attempt on his life. About three years after he arrived at the New Jersey Avenue station to be sworn in as president in 1861, and about four months before his corpse would depart the station, beginning its long journey to his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, President Lincoln wrote to Princeton, then the College of New Jersey, on the occasion of being awarded an honorary doctorate from the school. Written in his own handwriting, a beautiful and sweeping calligraphic print, if I may say so myself, the letter contains a poignant message. Executive Mansion, Washington, December 27th, 1864. My dear sir, I have the honor to acknowledge the reception of your note of the 20th of December, conveying the announcement that the trustees of the College of New Jersey have conferred upon me the degree of Doctor of Laws. The assurance conveyed by this high compliment that the course of the government which I represent has received the approval of a body of gentlemen of such character and intelligence in this time of public trial is most grateful to me. Thoughtful men must feel that the fate of civilization upon this continent is involved in the issue of our contest. Among the most gratifying proofs of this conviction is the hearty devotion everywhere exhibited by our schools and colleges to the national cause. I am most thankful if my labors have seemed to conduce to the preservation of those institutions under which alone we can expect good government and in its train sound learning and the progress of the liberal arts. I am, sir, very truly, your obedient servant. A. Lincoln. As alluded to above, Lincoln's corpse also passed through the station following his assassination in April of 1865. Everyone knows the story. For about a week, Lincoln's body lay in the East Room in the Capitol Rotunda for public mourning. But on April 21st, it made a procession in a funerary hearse from the Capitol to the nearby station. There, his body met once again with that of his young son, Willie, who passed away three years earlier from typhoid fever. Placed in a funerary train car fit for mourning, the bodies of the two Lincolns, father and son, departed the New Jersey Avenue station to begin their final journey home to Springfield, Illinois, where they now rest forever. Now knowing this piece of history, I appreciate my central New Jersey Avenue summer a bit more. Every latte, every chocolate chip muffin, and every Fred and New Jersey native I meet from behind the counter is on historic ground. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Henry Moses. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge to over 250 community organizations, including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton.
community-supported independent radio. And in this evening's last story, I visit a small tourist town in Pennsylvania and try to understand the massive visitor craze. Um, we just left the first thrift shop, uh, Nightbird, and we're now we're about to walk into God Save the Queens. Queens spelled with Q-W. Um, vintage, made in England, Doc Martens, Nightmare Before Christmas, Handbone Glass, Ween, Punk Rock Clothes for Infants to Adults, and hair dye. Come see the coolest store in town. I feel like we have, we have to go inside. Summer is a time for getaway, but not everyone has the funds for Cyprus, Rome, or New Zealand. Some of us are more limited by our ability to travel. And that's where kitschy small towns come in. Kitschy small towns like New Hope, Pennsylvania, only 25 minutes away from Princeton, New Jersey. I am a fan of this with like work jacket with the with the with dog, the flowers, with yeah. the flowers and the, <laughs> the, the poodle pin. No, it's cool. It is cool, I'm, I'm considering it. If you're a Princetonian tired of the university or a Philadelphian bored with the rocky steps, check out New Hope. A new experience full of old things, old kitschy things. So we're at the Perry Mansion Museum. This house is from, from 1784. Um, it says it exemplifies the prosperity of New Hope in the early days of the New Republic. But kitschy and old doesn't always translate to inexpensive. It turns out that the, the house museum was $7 a person, and we don't have that money, so we're going to visit the soap opera company, um, Specialty Soaps and Bath Luxuries. Not only did the old house cost $7 just to visit, but few of those bath luxuries were less than $20 each. Plus, parking was like $62 for the day. Kind of a ripoff. We still had a blast, though. So we're in this thrift store, and we did go to the concert tees section. Um, you know, just wondering if there's any like WPRB core bands. Um, but unless you're a Megan Trainer fan or like really into pentatonics, um, I don't think you're gonna find what you're looking for exactly. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're gonna find it. The shop we mentioned at the beginning of this story, the one that sells punk rock infant clothes, that was kind of a no-go. The hours were pretty strange. It's also one person at a time, and so I think, yeah, are we going one by one and have a solo experience? <laughs> are you guys attached to it? I don't need to. I'm not attached to, to it. No. I mean, it's cool. Honestly, I don't. The, the sign is the best part. So what places were cool? What places were open? What places weren't going to charge us more than $25 for about a quarter of a pound of soap? The answer was a used bookstore, Farley's Bookstore on Main Street. Um, I've picked up a used book called uh, The Directory of the Weaverland Conference, Mennonite Churches, oh, 1990. Um, it's every single family in these churches, I think, like, forever. Here, so we can flip to a family. <laughs> Harry Good, uh, born February 25th, 1904, died March 29th, 1967. You can see all of his children. And their home address, and their home phone number. And it tells you which church they're a member of. But the bookstore had far more to offer than simply a genealogy of the families of this Mennonite church conference in the United States. So I just opened a copy here in the, the, the used bookshop um, of one of my favorite books, which is uh, Middlesex by Jeff Eugenides. It's a bit water damaged and wet, and stuck in the middle is a business card that says, here I am dying, 
at an average pace. And then on the back, it's uh, Kave Akbar. And then clearly it is like some kind of promotional material for his a, a poetry journal, which he's published. Um, it also like, it kind of fits Middlesex, but definitely not in this part of the book. <laughs> yeah, the used bookstore really captured most of our attention. Oh my God, this one's written in green. <gasps> this is wow. such a pretty ink. Yeah, how often do you find books written in green nowadays? I really love that. I mean, knowing me. Nixon, Nixon, Bush League president. This is a populist hymn to you and yours. And I begin with your face and come back to your face. For our history is noble and tragic, like the mask of a tyrant. I think I was way too entertained by reading this semi-unhinged poem about Richard Nixon out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Nixon, Nixon, I saw your childhood home on TV. But I think what stood out to me was that the most fun parts of New Hope were the aspects that kind of embraced this kitsch, that embraced this commitment to old things, and weren't explicitly designed to grab a buck out of an unsuspecting tourist. But that was only our experience, and downtown New Hope was utterly packed on the Sunday that we visited. So we decided it'd be a great idea to walk around downtown and ask some other visitors what they thought. First, I met Emily on the corner of North Main Street and Bridge Street, walking with her grandmother. She was carrying a bevy of bags from retailers around town. So Emily, what brings you to New Hope? I'm visiting my cousins and family. And where are you from? New Hampshire. How have you found you know, the amenities and the shops and things? I really like it. I really like them. Um, yeah. Have you gone anywhere particularly cool you recommend? Um, let's see. <laughs> we went to a lot of shops today. Um, yeah, we bought a lot of things. I like the the variety of new and old, uh, antique and secondhand, as well as the um, local shops. Whereas Emily had come to New Hope to do some shopping and to see some relatives, Roberta, who we met near the New Hope-Lamberville Steel Trust Bridge, was visiting her daughter and her daughter's boyfriend, neither of whom seemed particularly excited to have her talk to WPRB. Roberta, and what brings you to New Hope? Uh, my daughter lives here. She works at Factory Girl um, Bakery, and Ooh, my boyfriend cool. works at Stella Restaurant, so New Hope <laughs> has become one of my favorite destinations to come to. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot to do for summer that's so close to like Princeton and other like, you know, like, you know places Absolutely. in New Jersey. Yep. You, don't, you don't have to be in Europe to have a great weekend. Or I know, it's great. You can walk the bridge, right, to go into Lambertville, so you've got the combination of Lambertville and New Hope there's all so much in fun like stuff, right? a 15-minute walk. It's incredible. Alrighty, thank you so much. My fellow travelers and I, weary from journalism, took Roberta's advice. We crossed the scenic New Hope Lambertville toll-supported bridge over the Delaware River and made it safely across to the Lambertville Trading Post where we indulged in a delicious cup of cold brew coffee. Lambertville, although slightly smaller, was equally as cute and kitschy as New Hope, effectively increasing the amount of kitsch one has access to in a small radius by about 45%. There were moments that appeared to be a bit overkitched. On what seemed to be the main corner of town where North Main Street meets Bridge Street, there sat a store selling sexy pasta, old damaged records, vintage lunchboxes, and strange novelty gifts. This was by far the busiest shop we had seen in town, busier than any thrift store, busier than any used bookshop. And we were still a bit perplexed. 
they are selling a, a small tote bag that says snack time with the Obamas. Pictured are a peacock and some nice cheeses and fruits, not pictured the Affordable Care Act. Perhaps my point of view is far too young and green to understand the appeal of all this kitschy merchandise. All I brought home from New Hope was a belly full of coffee, a copy of Joan Didion's book of essays slouching toward Bethlehem, and the knowledge that wherever you go in America, no less than 30 or 40 minutes away is a kitschy town where you can drop a few dimes or possibly hundreds of dollars on things that you probably not just don't need, but that would actively clutter your home. My verdict? You should visit New Hope. Or if you're not in the central New Jersey slash eastern Pennsylvania region, visit your region's equivalent of New Hope. There's one everywhere. New Hope can be a fun weekend trip, an alternative to the already overdone New York, Jersey Shore, and Poconos. A trip that allows you to traffic in the human experience, and so long as you keep an eye on your wallet and shy away from your impulse to buy a Michelle Obama-themed tote bag, you shouldn't even go broke doing so. Big thank you to Theo Wells Spackman and Evelyn McGonigal on the entire town of New Hope for their help with this story. Um, for WPRV News and Culture, this has been Adam Sanders. The race face, the face that sunk a thousand sampans, the face we all love in the Geritol ads, the face of the nation facing the nation on color TV. Wow, this is, this is actually really cool. WPRV wants you to know about Mural Arts Philadelphia. Mural Arts Philadelphia, the nation's largest public art program, exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studios here in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's director, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Randa Kulavali, Henry Moses, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. Other songs included in this episode are September by Robert Farmer and Train Loosing Man by Lobo Loco. Can't get enough of news and culture? Want to catch an episode you missed? Find us wherever you get podcasts or on our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. News and culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.